0: Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is Hell. Today, the story we are told when it comes to mass incarceration is, it is a system of racialized social control created by a cabal of Republican elites to maintain racial order in the wake of the civil rights movement. Law and order politicians mobilized this white fear into a panic about crime, which gave cover to the war on drugs and sending mass amounts of Americans to prison. But what if none of that is true? That's not to say there is definitely a racialized component to mass incarceration. It's just not what you think it is. The racialized component is something different, or maybe I didn't understand it before I read our guesswork. What if mass incarceration isn't dependent upon racial disparities, but class disparities? What if it wasn't a cabal that conspired to enact mass incarceration, but a multitude of uncoordinated policy initiatives at the local level that sent far too many people to prison? And what if mass incarceration wasn't as much about an exaggerated threat of the war on drugs, but an increase in real violent crime. We'll find out about all of those what ifs and how they may change our views on mass incarceration in a few minutes when we talk to sociologist Adaner Usmani who wrote the Catalyst Journal Journal article. Catalyst Journal article. That's pretty tough to say. The Economic Origins of Mass Incarcerations with co-author John Clegg. Adaner is an assistant professor of sociology and social studies at Harvard University. You can find out more about Adaner at Usmani.com. That's A-D-A-N-E-R-U-S-M-A-N-I.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaptooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show are Jonah Tomko-Smith and Alec Jerry, how about in alphabetical order? Alex, how's your week going so far?
1: Uh, it's a lot better than yours is going to be when you find out that the book you're reading for next week, The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity, is 816 pages. Oh,
0: good Lord. Really? When is that? Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday? Uh, Tuesday, I think. Oh, sweet.
1: Uh, It it looks really good, though.
0: Mm, All right. Well, I'm glad I'm taking Martin Luther King Day off, which I'll tell people about, I guess, uh, right now. Heads up to everyone about next week's show on Monday, Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Day. This is Hell is doing something very special all day Monday, January 20th at thisishell.com. We will be playing interviews we have done over the course of our show on African-American history. Alex will be sharing the entire list of interviews we will be playing on the social industry outlets and you will be able to hear our conversation all day from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Chicago time. Celebrate Martin Luther King Day with your friends here at This Is Hell and tell all your friends to listen Monday at thisishell.com. We will then be back Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday with live shows at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com and our exclusive podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell on Friday. Before you think it's all noble and righteous of us to take off MLK Day and give the deserved respect due to African American history, and don't get me wrong, we're now considering doing this every year on MLK Day, but the initial reason we decided to take Monday off is I'm still celebrating the freaking holidays. But this is it, I promise, I'm quitting the holidays after this, I'm strung out, I I can't handle it anymore my veins are collapsing from all the nutmeg and cinnamon i can hardly find one that isn't candy cane striped. but this is it i promise i'm getting off the junk and getting all clean next week i'm putting the tree to the curb and finally going straight until next holiday season when i'll probably get hooked again like the sucker with a sweet tooth that i am this is the final holiday celebration i will attend for the 2019 2020 holiday season Which means it's the last time I'll have to Avoid questions about the radio show From family See this is hell not only for me While on air but off air too Loving family members kindly Showing interest in my life Always ask how things are going on the radio show Which I think translates to Are you making any money at doing radio yet But I'm not certain I usually answer how's it it going on the radio show With oh it's going The you. This usually like leads to the question from hell for me The question I hate that they ask To which they will hate my answer And everyone in hearing distance will hate my response And that question from hell for me That family members always ask when we get together is So what have you been covering or talking about On the radio show lately? My mind reels when I hear this question What topic that we covered can I actually mention Without getting in an hours long argument about Who the hell knows what? For instance, when I'm asked this weekend, how am I going to say to a bunch of Clinton supporters, both Hillary and Bill, that we talked to Dan Denver about the Clintonian triangulation leading to the rise of the far right fascists They now blame on Trump How can I point to the reason we are in endless forever wars Is not because we're fighting a nebulous war on terror But because we are engaged in an imperial war To maintain the imposition of US dominance globally That bird ain't gonna fly with people who diligently watch MSNBC And therefore believe they are well informed So I'll likely mumble something like "Ah, The show's going great With some sort of elitist dismissive tone that is not intended, but somehow always comes out and I'll ask a question about their life to get them off the scent and we can move on. Of course, if that doesn't work and we end up talking about the freak show that is the Trump administration and suddenly I'm being told that Trump does whatever... Putin commands, I'll just shut up and listen, cataloging the conversation so I can try to recount it as best as I possibly can on next week's show. Then I'll want to go back to the hotel after that horrible conversation and get really, really high, which I can supposedly do now that recreational marijuana is legal in Illinois. Not that I can recreate in my hotel room. It's not, it's non-smoking. Not that I can smoke in front of the Doubletree Hotel because that's private property. And despite the slot machines immediately inside the front door, the Doubletree is a family establishment. Can't smoke in the car because again, it's parked on private property and smoking in public is still illegal unless you are on your own property. Can't smoke in the in-laws because they can't and don't approve of smoking pot despite them all using CBD oil. So even in this new world of recreational legal marijuana in Illinois, I can't get high after talking to the in-laws about politics and you wonder why we call our show. This is hell. The person who has the best answer to this week's question from hell for our listening audience Wednesday, this is hell trucker cap, which you can see right now at thisishell When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our page on Facebook at facebook dot slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us, Alex or myself at alex at hell dot com or Chuck at hell dot com. Alex. Tell our listeners what this week's question from
1: Hell is. Hey, uh, it's Jonah. Actually. Oh yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> This, uh, this week's question from hell is, uh, oh wait, what do you think the CIA has been up to this whole time? Uh, so, let's see, uh, do we, that's uh, wait,
0: what did the, what has the CIA been up to this whole time? What has the CIA been up to this whole time? That's this week's question from hell. The winner of this week's question from hell gets the This Is Hell trucker, Cap Jonah. Do we have any more responses to this week's question from
1: hell? Uh, Yeah, so we got uh, from uh, John T., building a $98 million hotel in Hyde Park with $1.9 million coming from the New York Regional Economic Development Council Fund. Uh, Lisa B. says, having their enormous paper shredder service to handle stapled documents. (laughs) Keegan W. says, uh, trying to turn cats into spies to use on Russian oligarchs. I like that. That is good. Cats into spies. That is a great plan. Uh, Max I. says, rectal osculation again again what? Uh, that was uh, <laughs> wait hold on just one second oh I'm sorry alright so yeah Nick our, uh, Nick A says mutilating cows making designs in farmers crops and abducting randos from the countryside <laughs> uh, Shane M says holding long alcohol fueled discussions on quote uh, who is number one end quote uh Mark uh, C says, "Oh, reading the mail, checking phone messages, eyeing the neighbors." <laughs> and uh... Any more? Uh, we'll get to the other ones for this
0: interview <laughs> All right, okay. uh, Alex and Jonah will have More of your answers to this week's question From hell following our guest again Leave your answer to this week's question from hell At our Facebook page facebook.com Slash this is hell radio or email it to Chuck at this or alex at this is or direct message us Your answer via twitter at This is hell radio it's time For I think we got one more we got Time for one piece of listener feedback It's time for listener feedback and Your email sent to us at chuck At Thisishell.com Again, direct messaged on Twitter Messaged on Facebook James writes Hi Alex, hi Chuck, hi Jonah Thanks so much for the work you put into This Is Hell It's absolutely true to say that your show Has been of benefit to my mental health In the years since I discovered it Well, good for you, James I wish I could say the same thing I guess it has been good for my mental health I'd be a real piece of work if I hadn't been doing the show. Your compassion and sanity have been a regular handhold for me in these ever darker times and has given me so much to share with others too. I'm a Brit. In Italy And have no idea If I can be of service to you As you try to expand Your coverage But I can do any Online donkey work You like I'm an English teacher A poet And I've worked as a journalist Of research policy In the EU So my main enthusiasm Is for putting words Together nicely But even if it's something Dull and laborious Like tidying up mailing lists Or whatever Then I would be Really happy to help Again Your work Makes my heart swell Thank you so much Not to worry If you don't know how to make use of me. I'm pleased to have had the excuse to write and say hi. All the best. James, as we are now doing a a five-day-a-week show, James and you can now become part of the This Is Hell crew. James is in Italy. Alex will be contacting him about doing said online donkey work. But for those of you who are in the Chicago area, we are looking for volunteer board operators and radio producers as well. We will train you, work within your schedule, and you can become part of the show. We're also looking for people who can help us rebuild our online archive of 20. Three years of radio shows All you have to do is contact us Telling us you're interested in working on the show Just like James did And we'll go from there Email us at chuck at this is hell.com Or alex at com, Or you can drop by Friday's Our new day for This Is Hell Office hours Our weekly meet and greet That's more of a think and drink At Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon in Chicago's little India neighborhood Starts around 6 and goes until whenever And if you do drop by We'll show you the studio Become a a volunteer on This Is Hell by emailing us or dropping by office hours on Fridays. That's listener feedback and This Is Hell. Send us your thoughts, comments, criticisms, and suggestions to us here on This Is Hell, and we'll likely read your message on air. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, we'll be rethinking mass incarceration, and we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith, another end of the world is possible. This is hell. We may be getting mass incarceration all wrong, and it may be a lot worse than we think. Our guest today argues the American penal state is a symptom of the underdevelopment of American social policy. We turn to punishment because we refuse to support a national social democratic response to poverty. And without one, you're going to have crime. Here to give us a different view on mass incarceration, sociologist Adonir Usmani wrote the Catalyst article, The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration, with co-author John Clegg. Welcome to This Is Hell, Adanir. Hi, Chuck, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. I gotta tell you, every day I sit in my office and I stare out my window and I look at a Pakistani restaurant called Usmania. Next door <laughs> to my office is a Chinese Pakistani restaurant <laughs> yes. called Usmania. The guy who owns the building on the other side of me, unrelated to that whole thing, his name is Faisal Usman. I am don't understand why Usmanis are surrounding me at every turn. <laughs> there are a lot of us.
2: Be, beware.
0: You can find out more about Adaner at Adaner Usmani A D A N E R U S M A N I dot In the introductory summary to your article, it states mass incarceration is typically understood as a system of race-based social control. Yet the standard story mischaracterizes disparities in U.S. punishment, ignores the sharp rise in violence beginning in the sixties, and this understands the constraints that led state officials to respond with penal rather than social policy. We offer a new explanation both for both the rise in violence and the punitive response. Before we get to that analysis, to your analysis, why does the standard story ignore the rise in violence and misunderstand constraints leading officials to react in a way that punishes offenders rather than any social remedy. What does that reveal about the way, mistaken way as you argue, argue, that mass incarceration has been looked at up until your article at Catalyst?
2: That's a great question. I, I, I think, let me just summarize what we think is weak in the conventional account and then I'll offer some speculation about why I think that weakness has persisted for so long. So what we argue is that the kind of conventional story that we have heard a lot about where mass incarceration came from dates it to this thing that is called the Southern Strategy where Republican party officials saw an opportunity to win the south, win win the south away from Democrats by courting working class whites. And the idea was that they would court these working class whites through themes of law and order politics all kind of as a reaction to the gains made by the civil rights movement. And the story here is that they used the language of the war on drugs to do this in, in particular, and, and what where basically mass incarceration came from is the sum total of all of those policies that we associate with the war on drugs. The big issue here, and this is what we go into in the article, the big issue is that there's been a lot of work now showing that drug Incarceration is a very, very small part of the total pie of mass incarceration, and that actually, you know, the estimates vary, but anywhere from 5 to 20 percent of prisoners only are in prison for drug or drug related crimes. So the story has to be a different one, and the story that we try and tell is a story about, as you were explaining in the beginning, the rise in violence in the United States, which was very pronounced and very serious, starting in the 1960s up until the 1980s, and then it stayed at high rates until the the mid-1990s. And so the story of mass incarceration is really not at all the story of the drug war, but the story of a failed response to the rise in crime. And that rise in crime, as you were saying also, is rooted in the problems of poverty and concentrated poverty and segregation in the United States. So why do we, why do we have this misunderstanding? What, what so why do yeah, So that was the second part, or that was that was the real question. And I think this is a challenge. I, I, my the way I would put it is that the conventional story is a very easy story to tell, and the reason it's a very easy story to tell is because effectively what's being argued is that people are being put in prison for things that don't really require any kind of state response. We could just very well be ignoring the things that people are doing. But for political reasons, elites, and particularly Republican elites, but then also Democrats, decided to decided to throw the state at these people. And I think the reason that's, that's an easy story is because effectively, the reform program that's suggested is extremely simple. Stop doing it. Abolish it. And actually the the kind of story that we want to tell is that these were serious social problems that were being responded to they were being responded to in totally the wrong way. And what the job of progressives is is not to is not to is is, is not to make the argument that in effect the state need not have done anything about the problems from the 1960s to the mid 1990s but actually done something totally different. I think the truth is that it's difficult for progressives. Progressives have found it difficult in general to talk about problems of crime and violence, and that would be my explanation for why the story has been so popular.
0: And that makes sense. You know, simplicity is always very attractive to any argument. You write numerically, mass incarceration has not been characterized by rising racial disparities and punishment, but rising class disparity. How do we view mass incarceration differently when we see it more as being characterized by class rather than racial
2: disparities? Yeah, that's, a, that's another great question. I think. TO BE VERY CLEAR HERE, IT IS THE CASE THAT RACIAL DISPARITIES IN INCARCERATION ARE EXTREMELY PRONOUNCED. THEY'RE VERY, VERY HIGH, AND THEY'VE BEEN CONSISTENTLY HIGH. THE POINT, THOUGH, IS THAT WHEN WE'RE TRYING TO EXPLAIN MASS INCARCERATION IN PARTICULAR, WHAT WE'RE TRYING TO EXPLAIN IS SOMETHING THAT CHANGED IN THE UNITED STATES in the 1970s and the 1980s, and racial disparities have actually been a feature of American punishment for most of the 20th century. They didn't change that substantially in the late part of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century. What changed instead were, as we were, as we document in the article, class disparities. And those class disparities hint at this explanation. Those class disparities are linked to class disparities in violence and crime, and ultimately that those disparities are a story of poverty and segregation, and, and co- concentrated poverty and segregation and unemployment, et cetera. So the story of class disparities is really the, the reason that we emphasize that as a weakness of the conventional account is because the conventional account is telling a story about how white elites put poor black people in, or put black people in prison. And really, what happened is that poor black people went to prison in the United States, and that story is a different story than the than the classic war on drugs story.
0: What is missed then when, let's say, somebody reads your article or just sees the headline or sees somebody's critique or analysis of your work that states that you are, by putting a focus on the class disparity, you're erasing any racialized nature of mass incarceration? What is missed in that kind of understanding where people believe that class erases race?
2: Right, that's another another great question, Chuck. I think, I think the way to put this would be that the race story, the story of racial inequality is pivotal to the story of mass incarceration. We don't want to suggest that it's not, but it's mostly a story of racial inequality outside the criminal justice system and not inside the criminal justice system. So we often tell the story of mass incarceration as a story of racist police, racist prosecutors, racist judges. All of that is true there's no doubt that there is racism inside the criminal justice system. But by and large, our best explanation for racial disparities in in, in incarceration is not that racism inside the criminal justice system, but the massive amount of racial inequality outside the criminal justice system relating to racial inequality and life circumstances more generally. The upshot of that is that if you were to eliminate all forms of Racism inside the criminal justice system, you would make some inroads into racial disparity, but you wouldn't actually do very much to eliminate racial disparities in mass incarceration. The best estimates are about 70 to 75% of racial disparities are explained by racial disparities in offending, which are effectively, as I've been arguing, racial disparities in life circumstances outside the criminal justice system. So it, it suggests a different reform program. It suggests People who take race, racial inequality really seriously and racial disparity very seriously, as all progressives should do, have to look to a wider, broader toolkit of policy options if they want to fight it.
0: So is mass incarceration then about wealthy elites trying to control the poor more than it is about white supremacists trying to control uh, the population of color?
2: No, and the reason that I, th- I think that is an appealing story, and that's an appealing alternative, and it's a story that's been told. There are a few books that make, a few books and articles that make that argument. The reason that that is not accurate in the United States is because American incarceration and American criminal justice is actually distinguished from most criminal justice systems in most advanced capitalist countries by the fact that American criminal justice is remarkably local, decentralized and actually small d democratic. And so what that means is that you know as as you will know if you so for, follow local DA races or follow races for mayor, criminal justice out, uh, criminal justice policies in the United States are actually controlled in large part by electorates, or a better way of putting it is that electorates have a remarkably, a remarkable amount of input into criminal justice outcomes. And so to tell the full story of where the American penal state came from, you have to take seriously the fact that the electorate in the United States had considerable input into criminal justice policies. Now, to be very clear, and this links to the questions you asked earlier and the answers I was trying to give, when electorates were responding to the rise in violence and the rise in crime, and we show data in the article that suggests that American, the American public, both black and white, did turn very punitive over this period. When the electorate was responding to the rise in violence and the rise in crime, there were a limited set of policy options that politicians offered. and As a result, you saw a lot of people plump for punitive options. There's a remarkable amount of support for more policing and more incarceration in American public opinion polls. That has to be understood as a symptom of the limits of what American politics makes possible. You point out that the punitive turn
0: in criminal justice policy was not brought about by a layer of conniving elites, but was instead the result of uncoordinated initiatives by thousands of officials at the local and state levels. What did those uncoordinated initiatives have in common? Were they guided by a cultural understanding or societal beliefs at the time regarding incarceration and more largely criminal justice? Did those uh, uncoordinated initiatives together create something that they all intended with all officials interested in the same end goal of mass incarceration to address crime? Is this the electorate trying to control the poor?
2: The way I would put it is that The common thread here is the fact that the United States has an underdeveloped set of policy options for dealing with the symptoms of poverty, namely crime and violence. And that underdeveloped set of policy options is a consequence of the underdevelopment of social democracy in the United States. Now, to make this point fully, I think we have to note something about social policy that doesn't often get noted. And this is a comparison between social policy and penal policy that isn't often noted. We often hear prison reformers say that it costs $40,000 to put a person in prison and it costs much less to to put a person in college or put a person in school or something like that. And now that that comparison is literally true, but the inference that penal policy is actually more expensive is wrong. The reason that it's wrong is because penal policy makes contact with a very, very small proportion of the population, that small fraction of poor people who end up committing crimes serious enough to warrant incarceration. And as a result, the United States spends only something like $250 billion on prisons, police, and the courts. And I say only because if you compare that to what even the United States, even this underdeveloped social democrat, uh, even this country with an underdeveloped social policy response to crime spends on social policy. That's something like anywhere from one to three trillion dollars, depending on the estimates. The point here is that social policy to deal with social policy as a response to violence is actually a remarkably expensive way to deal with poverty and deal with crime and violence that's the result of poverty. The point of that is not to say that, that it's not justified at all. The point of the, the point of this whole article is to say that was the right thing to do. But the issue here is that in a country which doesn't redistribute from rich to poor on which is uh, which is sort of a persistent feature of American history, a country which doesn't do that is a country that is doomed to respond to violence and crime with penal policy only. And that for us, is the heart of the issue, the failure to redistribute from rich to poor, the failure of the American working class, the American labor movement, and the weakness of the Democratic Party, making it impossible for the United States to launch a social policy response. And then so electorates, when they're given no real social policy option, it makes sense that they will plump for prisons and police.
0: So uh, that's just incredible that uh, this whole process of the unwillingness to redistribute from the rich to the poor leads to us not having the social policy necessary to actually address the root causes of crime. So social policy will always be more expensive than penal policy. So as long as we focus on the bottom line of what's best for the budget or the deficit, we're always going to choose a penal response rather than a social policy response. Does this mean that we are doomed here in the United States? States to never addressing the root causes of uh, crime?
2: Doomed, I wouldn't say. Doomed is too strong a word, but you're right to say that it's been a persistent feature of American politics. Sometimes we think about it as a failing of an individual politician or a failing of an individual party. There's a lot of research that indicts Lyndon Johnson's government in the 1960s, for instance, for not going far enough. And all these Criticisms are appropriate in one sense, but in another sense, they don't understand that the the constraints have been enduring and characterized administration after administration after administration. It's something deeper about America. Now, that deeper thing, if you were to ask me in one sentence, that deeper thing is the underdevelopment of the American labor movement and the weakness of the Democratic Party to be a social democratic party on the European model. Now, that is, in one sense, preordained by structural institutional facts about the United States, but it's also something, in, you know, particularly in recent years, something that conceivably now seems to be at least something that we can shift a little. There's a little bit of hope on the horizon, I think, and I would say that we're doomed to repeat the problems of the past with regards to penal policy, unless we can push Some of these nascent efforts at at, um a kind of social democratic this sort of new democratic socialist movement. That's the that's the route, I think, to really addressing the deficits of the way that the United States addresses the problems of crime and violence. And
0: as you were pointing out, the Kerner Commission and the Great Society ideas, they did have the right way to do things. And for a while, those kind of liberal policies of social, uh, social policies were being enacted during the 1960s. There was eventually enough pressure was put on the Democratic Party to support those kind of programs. But that support eventually faded because... As you point out, the Democratic Party is not a social democratic party. So to what extent do you think there can be any success in pushing for that kind of social policy that you believe is necessary, the kind of social, social democracy that is needed to address the root causes of crime?
2: You mean historically, or you mean in the present?
0: In the present, even historically or okay. in the present. I would just say that the party has just never been a social democratic party, so you're never going to get a social dem- democratic response, at least a lingering social democratic response from the party, because that's not what it stands for.
2: Yeah, in one sense, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that that is... I would just say, with respect to the '60s, that's part of the story of the '60s for sure. I agree, Chuck. There's no question that the party was extremely limited by its attempt to stitch together this coalition of Southern Democrats and the New Democrats. Um, but on the other, on the other things that happened in the 1960s were more structural and didn't have to do with the party. I mean, the the most important thing above all was the war in Vietnam. The war in Vietnam drained the Budget in ways that meant that the the Lyndon Johnson government was always trying to thread and thread a needle, right? That was basically impossible to thread. Um, I, I would say, you know, I, I think that right now the strategic questions of whether these battles are best fought inside the Democratic Party or outside the Democratic Party should be treated as strategic questions rather than as questions of principle. I can see some advantage to contesting battles inside the Democratic Party. I would say, for instance, the the decision that Bernie made to run within the Democratic Party has has had enormously salutary effect on the American left and makes the kind of policy agenda that we've been talking about much, much more likely than it ever has been in my lifetime in the United States. So I wouldn't say that this should be taken as a as a matter of principle, that the Democratic Party could never be shifted sufficiently. But you're right to say that the the obstacles are really, really severe. I agree with that. What does it
0: say about the United States when, during the Johnson administration, they chose funding the Vietnam War over funding social policy? Today, we're choosing clearly to fund wars around the world instead of choosing to fund social policies. What does it say about the U.S. when we choose fighting wars over funding social policy?
2: Yeah, it says imperialism kills social democracy. Imperialism, imperialists' misadventures are are the enemy of social democratic reform at home. I think that's what it says.
0: We are speaking with sociologist Adan Usmani, who wrote the Catalyst Journal article, The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration, with co-author John Clegg. Adan is an assistant professor of sociology and social studies at Harvard University. You can find out more about Adan at his website, adanairusmani.com. More than anything, then, it seems that mass incarceration reveals that the United States, or its public, or the electorate, they just don't seem to care for the poor. You write that due to the persistent incapacity of the American state to redistribute from rich taxpayers to impoverished cities, no sustained significant effort to fight crime at its roots was feasible. As a consequence, state and local governments were left to fight violence on the cheap, with only the inexpensive and punitive tools at their disposal. Was the cost, then, of tax cuts in the 80s, 90s, aughts and teens, mass incarceration. Did tax cuts for the rich mean jail time for the poor?
2: There's no doubt that there's a relationship between the two. I I do want to just issue one, one amendment to what you said, which is that the electorate in the United States doesn't care about the poor. I think that there's an there's an there's no doubt there's an element of truth for that uh, to that but let's look for some hope and there is some hope in public opinion polls uh, if you do if you look at public opinion polls that simply ask people whether they want more police and more prisons it's pretty dismal it is true that majorities of the american public black and white have said that they want more of these things particularly in the 80s and 90s when all of these policies passed on the other hand if you look at questions where people are asked whether they think that prisons and police are the right way to deal with violence or jobs and education or something like that, you actually see remarkable numbers of Americans say that they support more social policy approaches to the problem of crime. There is an intuition, I think, that crime and violence are the symptoms of a sort of failed society. And so I think the job of us, of progressives in general, is to channel that part of public opinion that sees those things as the solution to these problems rather than prisons and police. That, that's at least that—that's the kind of amendment that I would offer to saying that the public is, is, is uniformly punitive. It is true that you see a lot of punitiveness in public opinion when you look at it, but there are also these sorts of things that we can cling to, I think. And Now, your question again? Uh, well, I, I was going
0: to—I started thinking about something else. I, I, I got totally distracted because I was thinking about something else, because I started thinking about the local electorate. And yeah. the this idea that you have that, you know, this was not—mass incarceration wasn't some conspiracy by a Republi- uh, cabal of Republican elites. But at the same time, one of the conspiracy theories that you always do hear about mass incarceration is the drive for profiteering, that it's being driven by uh, for-profit prisons, for-profit detention centers, that—, that That's part of the conspiracy, the cabal, the private, uh, you know, kind of uh, emphasis and influence on the situation. How does the influence over incarceration policy by private contractors amount to any level of a cabal of scandalous actors or
2: not? Right. Uh, I think that in, in as an explanation for where mass incarceration came from, the for profit story is really weak. And that's basically because very few prisoners are actually held in private facilities. I think it amounts, even today, it's something like maybe on the order of 5 to 10% of total prisoners. So it really can't explain, in my view, the logic of the system as a whole and where it came from. There is maybe some argument to be made about how it can explain persistence over time, why it is that mass incarceration levels of ma- levels of incarceration haven't come down so significantly even as crime and violence have declined a lot but i wouldn't even stretch that point too far i think again that is the kind of way in which people have talked about mass incarceration that we'd like to push back against in this article and 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 emphasize that you know people when they go to prison are being arrested charged, convicted, and sentenced for something. And this is really a story of the failed way in which we deal with that something, rather than a conspiracy to concoct this something. That's kind of the story. You write that the standard story of incarceration
0: mischaracterizes the population that language, languishes inside American prisons. It ignores the shaping role of violence on the politics of the punitive turn, and it overlooks the decentralized and atypically democratic character of American criminal justice institutions. So there's a class disparity, not a race disparity. Americans freaked out at violence and lacking a federal social policy response in a completely uncoordinated manner. Everybody responded with punishment because That's the only option offered due to a lack of resources. In other words, the standard story ignores class, erases the punitive nature of society in the U.S., as well as that society's collective role in creating mass incarceration. Is the standard story then one of American exceptionalism that ignores American shortcomings when it comes to refusing to address class, our punishing ways, our uh, complicity in both by seeing it as a racialized conspiracy reacting to an exaggerated fiction?
2: That's a, that's an interesting way of putting the question. Yeah, so I think I think you know the exceptional the 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 story the the standard story does have a certain view of American exceptionalism that is not the same view of American exceptionalism that I would um, that I and John put forward in this article. So to make that clear, I think you know the the story is as you're saying a story of American exceptionalism in which America is this is this white supremacist nation whose logic requires it to racially and uh, to to socially control racial minorities now i think it's very clear that mass incarceration has had the effect of controlling racial minorities socially controlling racial minorities but that's very different from the argument that it was erected with this intention the story of mass incarceration that we would prefer to tell the story of American exceptionalism that we would prefer to tell that's linked to American mass incarceration does have something to do with racial inequality. But the way in which I would tell the story is different. The way in which the story goes, in my opinion, is more something like American slavery was very, very important to establishing the parameters of racial inequality in the United States. The kind of story that we tell about the rise of violence in the piece is that America was sort of uniquely the only country in the advanced industrial world that industrialized not with its own peasantry, but with peasants who came from abroad, Europe, Europe's peasantry in effect. And as a result, when the African American peasantry in particular did leave the South for Southern cities and for Northern cities, it kind of missed the industrialization boat. It arrived at a time in American cities where these jobs had already started to disappear in effect. those jobs had been taken by these people who had come earlier to these cities. And as a result, the jobs that were lost in agriculture in the United States were never really replaced in cities. As a consequence of all of that, you start to see in my opinion the rise of violence and the rise of crime the rise of violence and the rise of crime are really a story of a failed response to america's agrarian transition and in that sense america was unique america's agrarian transition was unique in the sense in which i said that it didn't industrialize with its own peasantry and that really is a story of slavery and jim crow of the plantation economy so there is a way in which america's exceptional america's fact that the the fact that america was this exceptionally Exceptionally, this slave nation in in the industrialized world does help explain mass incarceration, but it's a different story than the story of American exceptionalism that the conventional account would tell. You write a baby boom had
0: occurred In the aftermath of World War II As couples who had put off Having children during the war Raced to start families During the prosperity of the post-war period This led to more crime for two reasons Most crime is committed by young men So an increase in the share of young people In the population All else being equal Should lead crime to increase And a larger birth cohort May face more competition Upon labor market entry Stimulating conflict and demand For illicit forms of income generation In the US case, This demographic explanation seems to fit the shape of the crime wave, which began with a rise in juvenile delinquency in the 50s and ended in the great crime decline of the 90s, just when the baby boomers were aging out of crime. Sweet. Adonair, can we blame the whole crime wave that caused mass incarceration on baby
2: boomers? (laughs) Not at all, Chuck, unfortunately. The truth is that the baby boom was something that was common to all industrial countries. And you did see an increase in crime in all industrial countries, but part of the point of that part of the essay is to say that the baby boom was no doubt part of it, but something exceptional was happening in America as well. And that thing that was exceptional was what I was saying earlier, the failure to to offer jobs and employment to the new migrants who are coming to American cities, both south and north, and disproportionately African-American immigrants who are coming north and south, that the failure of those communities to find good jobs in American cities is a large part of the reason for why crime rose. Yeah, the baby boom mattered. There's no doubt. But that's sort of what orthodox criminologists focus on, and our point here is to situate that in the context of these broader political and economic shifts that were happening in America at mid-century. You're right. American
0: labor and housing markets were in no state to absorb the new migrants. Those migrants had little or no wealth of their own due to the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow, and racial exclusion from education, jobs, and home ownership. Even if they had wanted to, city governments were in no position to address the resulting concentration of poverty and unemployment in predominantly black inner-city neighborhoods. Meanwhile, basic social services were being undermined by the ongoing reallocation of people, jobs, and tax dollars to growing suburbs. It was primarily these factors that led to the exploitation of urban crime rates, or explosion, sorry, explosion of urban crime rates. Did the suburbs then cause crime in the inner city? Are suburbanites to blame for inner city crime and mass incarceration? I'm trying to blame somebody. I wanted to blame, I wanted to blame the baby boomers first, but if it doesn't work with baby boomers, I'll go with suburbanites. But if you have suburban baby boomers that you would like to blame, I'm on that too. <laughs>
2: Unfortunately, Chuck, you're interviewing a sociologist, and our way of thinking about things is that awful outcomes are really often the consequence of of nobody's to no no of structures rather than individuals, right? And in that sense, it's it's thousands, if not millions of actors pursuing their self-interest in a particular context that yields all of these awful outcomes. So, Yes, in one sense, the suburbs are a really big part of the story, and the reason that the suburbs are a big part of the story are uh, I would put it in two ways. The first thing, the first reason that the suburbs are a big part of the story is that they're a big part of the reason that cities in the United States start to collapse as people leave cities for suburbs. The tax base for cities starts to collapse, and the ability of cities to keep their sort of social infrastructure intact also collapses and crime explodes and violence explodes. The other way that suburbs end up being very important is in their preventing a redistributive solution to the problem of crime and violence. In other words, an attack on the root causes of crime and and violence. And the way in which that works is that suburbs start to become very, very important in state politics and they prevent redistribution from wealthy suburbs to cities. And you know, that ends up condemning cities to trying to fight crime and violence on the cheap. And that's, that's the whole story here, I think. Um, it's, it, it, you are, you're right to say that the suburbs are to blame in one sense, but in another sense, it's just suburban homeowners wanting to keep their money in their pockets, right? And that, uh, that in one sense is blameworthy, in another sense, it's totally ordinary behavior.
0: You write that by the 60s, as is well known, white Americans began to flee the central city in droves. These decisions are typically attributed to their racist aversions to living alongside blacks. Such aversions were commonplace, embodied in restrictive covenants and a violent defense of the color line. But the growth of the suburbs in this period is arguably better understood as a case of capital flight enabled by America's peculiar fiscal geography why is it best understood as capital fight rather than white flight and aren't the two the same isn't capital white
2: yes in large part they are the same that's totally right they are they are the same the point here was that when you're trying to understand why white homeowners disproportionately white homeowners leave cities in the 50s 60s the reasons are both racial and economic in some very important sense. And the reason the reason that we want to emphasize the economic is that white homeowners also leave areas that don't see a very large influx of African American migrants. They leave cities because they're terrified of paying for the social programs that these cities need to support new migrants and the sort of changing economy. So. It's, it's right to say that these aversions are racial. They are racial, but they're also a case of homeowners taking their capital and fleeing the grubby hands of city governments. And that's something that, you know, it is true that they're disproportionately white. They're also disproportionately middle class, right? And it's the case that Some um, non-white homeowners also leave cities. And so it's, it's, it's not to say that the racial story isn't important. It is very important. But it's just to say that it's inflected with this class story as well. So I tried to blame boomers, I tried to blame suburbanites
0: Not trying to, to, to blame anyone, I'm I sorry I tried to blame white people, alright, I'm going to try one more okay. uh, You write the public panic not because political entrepreneurs emerged But because crime rose precipitously This panic defined the context in which all politicians of this period were operating Talk of law and order beca- became not just viable but compelling And it was in this context that the entrepreneurs of the period emerged As Michael Flam argues in his history of this period It was precisely because the American public was growing fearful of crime that the conservative case against liberalism met with such success. Crime leads to a turn toward conservatism. If that's the case, what role does conservatism play in causing the conditions for that crime, like undermining resourcing of and enactment of social policies instead of those that are more punitive? What role does conservatism play in the crime that it is supposedly trying to fight?
2: Yes, I think there you're right that these are political actors that made an important that that caused an important shift in some sense. And the point here is that you know there were many different ways to respond to the rise in crime and violence, and some of that we talk about in the essay that in the late 1960s, the Kerner Commission and liberals who were in that orbit they responded in very different ways to the ways that conservatives responded, there's no question. But I think in order to understand why conservatives won out, you can't simply advert to the idea that they were better at selling this kind of punitive common sense to the American public. Really the story of why they won out is because is the the story of how liberals were extremely limited in the tools they could use to respond to crime and violence. And that's a story of the underdevelopment of social policy. So the point is that conservatives were very canny, there's no doubt. They were very canny at kind of pandering to this punitive common sense in the American public. But the reason they won out is is, is fundamentally not individual, but institutional. They won out because the alternatives were never going to blossom in the context of American political economy. It was just not possible to launch a social policy assault and crime, and then what you see, in the 1970s and 1980s, is liberals slowly shifting towards the conservative position, and those in you know the way in which Joe Biden and Bill Clinton talked about crime in the 1990s is basically indistinguishable from the way that conservatives were talking about crime in the late 1960s. Um, that is a story again. If you want to understand that, that's a story of American politicians rationalizing the way in which they are able to respond to crime, which is through punitiveness only.
0: You write that in a society in which the vast majority of criminal offenders are drawn from the bottom of its class structure and trapped in its worst neighborhoods, this is a risable proposition. Crime is an index of oppression. Blame thus misses the point. I absolutely love that phrase, crime is an index of oppression. Uh, How do we view crime differently when we realize that it is an index of of oppression? How do we view choosing penal responses to crime rather than social policy responses differently? How do we view incarceration differently when we understand crime as an index of oppression?
2: I think this really is the heart of the matter, in my opinion. I, I, I think when you asked me at the very beginning why it is that progressives like the standard story, why it is that we often opt for this conventional story in which crime is not, not really part of the picture, I think it's basically because progressives have not taken this observation to heart, this observation that crime is an index of oppression. We find it difficult in general to talk about crime because we think that to talk about crime is to blame people who commit crime. And that's absolutely not true. The reality is that crime and violence are concentrated in the poorest, most oppressed parts of the United States, and it's a consequence of that oppression that crime predominates. And if that is true, which it is, then the way in which we should respond to crime is in the manner of public health. You know, crime, there's no question that crime is threatening to victims, and so the state has an obligation to protect people who are potentially victims of crime. But but the state also has an obligation to offenders. They also have an obligation to set right the circumstances that are causing people to commit crime. And therefore blame totally misses the point. Blame is besides the point here. Um, the, the point is that this, the, the fact that somebody is committing crime or violence is a consequence of the fact that the state has failed that person for that person's entire life. And so what crime and violence should remind us of are our obligations to those people.
0: You write that if we are correct that the overdevelopment of the American penal system is a symptom of the underdevelopment of the American social policy. Meaningful reform is in large part the task of winning redistribution from ruling elites. It will be costly and there will thus be losers who will resist at the end of American mass incarceration is not a technical problem from which... There are smart, straightforward, but just not yet realized solutions. Rather, it is a political problem, the solution of which will require confronting the entrenched power of the wealthy. In this sense, the task before us is to build the capacities of poor and working class Americans to win redress from their exploiters. Is a class war necessary to address mass incarceration?
2: (laughs) Well, we wrote those sentences because of our dismay at the way in which... uh, reform to criminal justice is being talked about today in the mainstream, which is the idea that there could be this kind of bipartisan consensus that leads to reform that would make meaningful inroads. And The truth is that if you take our analysis seriously, the route to reform requires Massive redistribution. And nobody in American politics, with exception of you know, people on the left of the Democratic Party are talking about massive redistribution of that scale. And they're not really talking about it in connection to criminal justice reform. So yes, I think the answer to your question is is yes. There needs to be there needs to be an uptick in the kinds of things that can force people who have money in their pockets to give to people who don't have money in their pockets. And historically, what has that meant? That's meant the revival of the labor movement, the building of social democratic parties. That's where this kind of redistribution comes from. And that's what we need urgently in the United States if we're to address the problems of mass incarceration.
0: One last question for you, Adonir. We've been speaking with sociologist Adanir Usmani who wrote the Catalyst Journal article The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration with co-author John Clegg. Adonir is an assistant professor of sociology and social studies at Harvard University and you can find out more about him at adanirusmani.com We have a direct link back at our website thisishell.com Our final question that we ask each and every one of our guests, Adonir, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Uh Uh, You write, American punishment is of unprecedented severity, more prisoners per capita than ever before and more so than any comparable country in world history. It is also characterized by extreme inequality. Some Americans are much more likely to languish in prisons than others. These severity and inequality are its twin features. So I get to dust off an old chestnut of a quote that we used to use on the show all the time. Okay. Fyodor Dostoevsky famously oh. said a society should be judged not by how it treats its outstanding citizens but by how it treats its criminals the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons how would you uh, judge the degree of whatever you would call civilization here in the US when considering the twin features of US mass incarceration those being severity and
2: inequality I think that's that's extremely well put I think the truth is that if you were to take that quote seriously which I think we all should It would be a mistake to talk about American civilization um, at all, right? I mean, that would be a story of American barbarism rather than a story of American civilization.
0: So then what explains to you why this isn't, why isn't this? A HUGE PART OF THE POLITICAL DEBATE RIGHT NOW, WHETHER IT'S BETWEEN THE DEMOCRATS WHO ARE RUNNING FOR PRESIDENT OR JUST THE PUBLIC DISCUSSION IN GENERAL, WHY ISN'T THIS, WHY ISN'T MASS INCARCERATION AND THE WAYS THAT WE CAN ACTUALLY ADDRESS IT, INCLUDING THE KERNER COMMISSION REPORT, WHICH YOU POINT OUT WAS, was ACCURATE, IT JUST FAILED. WHY ISN'T THIS A BIGGER ISSUE?
2: I THINK THE REASON THAT IT'S NOT A BIGGER ISSUE IN A NUTSHELL is because it afflicts a very small part of the population very intensely, and the the truth of the matter is that you know even though America has the largest carceral state in world history, maybe second to the Soviet Union under Stalin, there's actually a respectable academic debate about that. It incarcerates a little less than one percent of its population, and so. Uh, barbaric way of dealing with social problems that the costs of which fall so acutely on the least powerful, least least well-resourced part of the population is something that tragically we've seen is sustainable in a society, even a democratic society. And that, I think, is really sobering and kind of terrifying. But as I was saying earlier, there are some green shoots on the horizon. There is this sort of social democratic constituency that's starting to brew in American politics and you know Bernie said it once I think jobs and education not prisons and incarceration that kind of thing there's possibility that that could that could gain traction in American politics I agree with you that it's not nearly as important we don't we don't it's not nearly as prominent as it should be and I think the reason for that is what I gave but uh, but I think there's hope
0: uh, Donner, I really appreciate you being on the show with us today this has been a fascinating conversation Everybody should check out your article at catalyst thanks so much for being on the show
2: Thanks very much, Chuck, for the invite. I enjoyed it a lot. Bye.
0: Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, This Is Hell. I'm your bitter-blind, broke-gap-tooth radio show, live stream podcast host Chuck Mertz. We're up against the clock, so let me just get through this kind of quickly. Producing this week's show was Alex Jerry. It's now Jonah Tomko-Smith, who is spelling him. The person who has the best answer to this week's question from hell for you, our listening audience, Wednesday, This Is Hell trucker cap, which you can see right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash ThisIsHellRadio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at ThisIsHellRadio, or you can email it to either myself or Alex at chuckitthisishell.com at or Alex at hell.com. This week's question from Hell is: Wait, what has the CIA been up to this whole time? Wait, what has the CIA been up to this whole time? Alex and Jonah will have the rest of the answers to this week's question from Hell tomorrow, and we'll announce this week's winner on our Thursday show. As well, which we do On a regular basis now, Thursday's show Is the answer to this week's question From hell, and we we introduce it. We reveal it on Tuesday. Again, leave your answer to this week's question from Hell. Wait. What has the CIA been up to this whole time? At our Facebook page, facebook.com/thisishellradio. Email it to me or Alex. Chuck it thisishell.com. Alex at thisishell.com, or direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. This is Hell office hours they are now at a new time. Do not show up this evening, Wednesday evening. We no longer have them on Wednesday evenings. We are now holding our weekly meet and greet, which is more of a think and drink that takes place at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. That now happens on Fridays, every Friday evening, beginning at 6 p.m. and going until at least 9 every Friday night when I posted the announcement on social industry outlets listeners responded that Fridays are far more convenient and it's way more likely that they'll hang out with us now that office hours are happening on the weekend. We had a ton of people who have not uh, shown up at uh, office hours in the past show up last week. At least that's kind of what my foggy memory has Catalogued Join us now Every Friday night For This Is Hell Office Hours At Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon In Chicago Meet myself And other members Of the This Is Hell Crew As well as Other listeners Of This Is Hell Who I'm certain You have far more In common Than this Stupid Radio Show. Finally, we do our show from studios above Carrie's Lounge. There's also a meeting space that is open for anyone in the community or community groups to organize in a neutral setting. You don't have to meet at your friend's home. You don't have to clean your house up because other activists are coming over. All you want to, all you have to do is contact me again, chuck at thisishell.com, and I'll connect you with the people in charge of scheduling at the space. Again, if you are a community member or organization who is looking for a neutral place to meet, Contact me at ChuckThisIsHell.com and we just might have the space for you. On tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show, we'll have the return of The Intercept's health and environment reporter Sharon Lerner. Sharon will return to discuss her article, The War on the War on Cancer, Trump's Gutting of Toxics... Regulations will mean Higher profits for pro- polluters And higher cancer rates for the American people Tune into tomorrow's streaming Live show at 10am Chicago time at thisishell.com Or listen to the podcast posted shortly after Our live stream to find out All the answers to this week's question From hell and to see if you've won I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio Show host Chuck Mertz producing this week's Show Jonah Tomko-Smith Alex Jerry was earlier but he had To split because he had to pick up his kid from daycare that's sweet thanks to alex jerry thanks to Jonah Tomko smith thanks to adair Adenera usmani i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show host chuck mertz live from land stolen from the natives this is hell
1: thank you for listening to this is hell for more interview hell and to support the show visit thisishell.com.